Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Good morning, good morning, Hope Brooklyn. How's everyone doing? Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing today? Doing good? Good. It's amazing to see all the conversations happening. Again, because, you know, dealing with a, a year and a half of being disconnected and disoriented and displaced, um, human interaction is still a beautiful thing to see. And so I'm so glad to watch this, um, this like, these Sundays unfold because, man, it, it feels good to be with God's people on the Lord's day. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Ryan. I'm a pastoral resident here at Hope Brooklyn. Uh, and some of you may know this, some of you may not. My residency is sadly coming to an end in December. Um, yeah, it's really bittersweet. Um, parting is bittersweet, but um, it has been a privilege to be here. Um, my wife and I, at the end of 2019, took a major step of faith and left behind um, a church we'd been a part of for over a decade, a job that you know we were passionate about to take a next step in what God was doing in our lives, and Hope Brooklyn was where we landed, and we have learned immensely from you. Whether you realize it or not, just the ethos you all embody as, a people of, as the people of God here in this community, I will always take that with me. Um, my gosh. Um, but we're here till December, so you still got me, um, and we'll get to enjoy the holidays together. But yeah, just for some of you who may not know, you know, some people are saying, oh, some people, we had like a, a, a call as a church, and that's when Drew announced um, how my residency was ending. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted just to thank you, all of you, you know, in this space here and now. And I'm looking forward um, to still being, you know, a part of the Hope Brooklyn family, though, you know, now I'll be more like a distant cousin than anything else. <laughs> all right, so we've been in the middle of a series called um, Wisdom's Call where we've been examining the wisdom literature of the Old Testament in an attempt to figure out how to live well, how to, how to live the good life. And we say the good life. We don't mean perfect lives. We don't mean lives devoid of suffering and struggle. We don't mean lives where we make all the right decisions all the time, but where we try to live lives that are formed and, and shaped by the way of Jesus. And so today we're going to be looking at the book of Job, and we're going to be learning, um, I think, a very important lesson, I think, Job is one of those texts where you can read it over and over. Again, it's speaking on so many levels. It's asking really good questions. It's asking, hey, question number one, um, why do humans suffer sometimes seemingly needlessly? Job also asks the question of, is God just when humans suffer? it, 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 It begs the question, how should we respond to suffering? How should we respond to God in our suffering? And those are great questions, and they're, they're worthy of, of their, own, of their own, to- own topics and their own series. But today I want to focus on another lesson Job teaches us, which is, how do we walk with people in their suffering? It is no mistake, it is no coincidence that after a year we've had, we've landed in this text because for, for many of us had to do, many of us have suffered over this past year and a half. 
and we've known people who've suffered. And so the question is, how, how do we walk with people in their suffering? How do, we, how do we come alongside people as they endure the seeming unendurable, as they deal with the, the pain and the loss that is unimaginable and unexplainable? And I think Job is going to both show us how to do that as the people of God for a suffering world, and also how not to. And I'm excited to dive in. So before that, let me pray for us. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, open the eyes of our hearts that we may hear your word and understand and do your will. For we are pilgrims upon the earth. Hide not your commandments from us, but open our eyes that we may perceive the wonders of your law. Speak unto us the hidden and secret things of your wisdom. On you we set our hope that you shall enlighten our minds and understanding with the light of your knowledge, not only to cherish those things which are written, but to do them, that in the reading the lives and sayings of the saints we may not sin, but that, that such may serve for our restoration, enlightenment, and sanctification, for the salvation of our souls and the inheritance of life everlasting. For you are the enlightenment of those who lie in darkness, and from you comes every good deed and every gift. Amen. So, context. For those of you, maybe you're familiar with the book of Job, maybe you're not. Job is a righteous man. Job is one who's faithful to God. His, his designation as righteous is, one, is a designation of someone who is in right relationship with Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of the God of the Old Testament who is, who is God, who, who is the triune God we serve. And so, he is faithful to Yahweh. He is righteous. He is upstanding in all he does. And yet we get this interesting scene in which the Satan, the, the accuser, enters into the throne room of God. And we can spend hours talking about what exactly that, that's going on right there. But he comes in and, and, and he's basically asking the question. It's an, it's an important philosophical question. which He basically says, God, you know, does Job serve you because you bless him and because you provided for him? Or even if you took everything away, even if everything was stripped for him, would he still serve you? Even if he was suffering, would he still serve you? And so this is the question, right? God is put on trial, and, it's, and God is forced to allow, allow this event, these events to unfold so that he can both vindicate Job, but also show that he's still just and he, and, and he is still worthy of honor and glory whether someone is blessed or not. And so you have this whole thing that happened where Job loses everything. He, he loses his fields, he loses his families, he loses his health, and he's in a pretty sorry state. He's questioning God. He's, and at first his questioning is, is benign. It's, you know, he's, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But as the suffering persists and as the suffering continues, his questions get deeper and more profound. And then Job is not alone in this. We have his wife who, you know, famously tells him to curse God and die. You know, great advice. Um, and then Job is also surrounded by friends. And these friends come alongside him. And here's what the Bible says. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamite. 
they met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. It's traditional in um, ancient Near Eastern cultures that mourning was a very public thing. It was, it was something you didn't just, you didn't say you were sad, you didn't just cry, but you did these physical things to show that you were in mourning. And you also did them, when, not just when you were in mourning, but when you saw someone close to you who was also in mourning. You, you empathize with them. You, you sympathize with them. You, you took on their suffering as your own by, by tearing your robes and covering yourself with ashes to show that you were in solidarity with the mourning, with the suffering. And if this was all we got from Job's friends, we wouldn't need this sermon. Because actually right here, we get a picture of what it means to comfort someone in their suffering. And we're going to talk about it a bit more later, but in the beginning... Job's friends do, I think, what we need to do when people suffer. They empathize with him. They mourn in solidarity with him. And then they are silent with him. They don't, they don't try to speak. They don't try to, try to give answers. They just sit with him for seven days and don't utter a word. You know, when I first got into pastoral ministry, I, I remember... Um, Oh, a student of mine's father passed away. And I remember going to my father-in-law, who's been a pastor for many years, and I, I remember asking him, like, hey, like, I've been asked to, you know, be with this family and do this funeral and go to the hospital, um, you know, to be with the family. I had just got the news. I just needed advice, right? It was one of those first moments in my pastoral career where, like, I had to deal with suffering on that level, a young man's father dying. And I remember my father just gave me one piece of advice. He said, Ryan, right now, they're, they're not going to hear your scripture they're not going to hear the prayer. Just be with them, right? And so often when people are suffering, that's what they need. And so Job's friends would have been fine if this was just it. But after seven days, they started talking. And we have to realize that as, as, even though they're silent, the text doesn't say Job is silent. Job is questioning. Job is wrestling with what's happened to him. You can imagine Job is a righteous man, and everything has been stripped from him. In the ancient Near East, there was a, there was a, a, a philosophical conundrum called the deed-consequence relationship, which essentially said good deeds get rewarded, evil deeds get punished. It said if you're good, if you're righteous, if you obey the Torah, if you, if you, if you do everything according to the God, word of God, things should go well from you. And if you're evil and if you're selfish and you take advantage of other people, well, you deserve judgment. And so this is the brilliance of the book of Job because a righteous man loses everything. And so as Job naturally has a lot of questions about this because this isn't how it's supposed to go. But these questions bother his friends. And I think often in the face of unimaginable suffering, when God has called us to walk alongside people, and that suffering causes them to question, sometimes those questions bother us. Why? Because they ask questions like, how could a good God allow this to happen? Does God see me? What's the point of prayer? 
And the reason why these questions bother us is because if we are Christians, these questions get to the right, of the, right to the root of our identity. We, as Christians, we profess to believe in, 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 in the creator. We believe in the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit who is redeeming and has redeemed the world. And so when suffering happens and we watch people wrestle with this, their questions challenge our very presuppositions about the world. And so we feel these questions personally. This is why the internet is so toxic. It's because people don't just, don't just have political debates, they have identity debates. People don't just have religious debates, they have identity debates because nowadays all these things are conflated. We are our politics for many of us. We are our religious experience, our religious background. And so any questioning of that, any honest probing of those things seems to challenge the very foundations of who we are. And so what we do, we get defensive. And this is exactly what happens with Job's friends, that his questions begin to bother them, and so they get defensive, and then they start talking. And they each propose to try to solve the problem of Job's suffering. Job, you got questions? Well, we got answers. We're going to let you know why this is happening to you. And this is often the temptation as Christians. When we watch people we love suffering, the temptation is to go into fix-it mode. The temptation is to go into gospel proclamation mode where we say, no, we got the answer. And know who that name is? It's Jesus. When someone's just lost someone and there's no explanation behind it, that could be true, but it can be misapplied truth. And this is actually what happens with Job's friends. We're going to get to each of their friends. They give these long speeches. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of them. I'm going to summarize them for us. But here's what happens. Job's friends speak truth, but that truth is misapplied. Because they actually don't know how to apply it and how to speak wisely about human suffering. So let's go to the first friend, Eliphaz. I, I want to call him the counselor who misses the mark. And, and if you've grown up in church, I'm sure you've gotten some counseling that missed the mark. I'm sure if any, any spousal relationship, you've gotten some counseling, or if you tried to solve a spouse's problem, and you have missed the mark. I think for me, um, I remember one of the most profound things, um, my wife is here today, and profound thing I learned early on my, in our marriage, I'm very much like a doer and a, and a fixer, so when there's a problem, I want like to attack the problem, get it done. And I remember one time, my wife said, like, I, my wife is the best thing. She says, I am not a congregant. I'm not looking for you to preach to me. I'm looking for you to listen to me. Because I would get like preachy. I would, I would get up. I would, I would start pacing. I'd have three points and a conclusion and an altar call at the end. And I, was, and I was ready. Like, I have the word of the Lord for you. And that's not what she needed. So Eliphaz is the counselor who misses the mark. See, Job's con so Eliphaz makes the argument that Job shouldn't lose confidence. He should be confident in his fear of God. And guess what? If he's actually been righteous, if he's actually not a sinner as his situation seems to dictate, then he should take confidence that this will be resolved. Eliphaz believes that those who sow trouble reap trouble. And if Job responds to his suffering the right way, which the right way would be, shut up, stop asking questions, just receive the suffering and get over it, he would be restored, right? In Eliphaz's mind, suffering is a pedagogical tool. It's, it's a tool used for Job's learning. So obviously God has something to teach Job, and so you should learn what God is teaching. So stop questioning, stop wrestling, 
and just receive the lesson. I've given this advice at points in my life. I know many of us have received this advice, right? Where people take the suffering we're experiencing, or we look at the experienced suffering of others and say, ooh, God's trying to teach you something. And that could be actually be true, but it's misapplied because actually Eliphaz doesn't get the fact that Job is actually righteous, that this suffering is happening for no reason. There's a lesson for Job to learn, but not the lesson Eliphaz thinks he needs to learn. Eliphaz asserts many things that are true. He says a lot of true things about God, but he fails in the application of of his theology because theology is not about generalization. It's about contextualization. That is why Jesus becomes incarnate. Jesus is the incarnate one. He, He comes into the human condition. Jesus is not a general idea. He is a person. And so when we deal with people's real human suffering, Assaulting them with theological platitudes that overgeneralize their suffering does nothing for them. Any advice we give to those in suffering needs to be contextual. And the reality is Eliphaz doesn't have the context because he doesn't have divine perspective. And so Eliphaz presumes to know why Job is suffering. So he gives, them the, he gives Job these cheap religious answers that actually don't apply to Job's situation. Why? Job isn't a sinner. And the lesson he doesn't need to learn is to shut up and just learn from your suffering because obviously you sinned and you need to learn something. No, Job is a righteous man. Job needs to learn a lesson. That's actually true. Job does learn a lesson at the end of this book. But it's not the lesson Eliphaz thinks. Next, Bildad. Bildad is the defender of God's justice. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a conversation with a friend who, you know, has questions about the faith. And all of a sudden their questions, you, you become God's lawyer. You want to defend God. As if he needs defending, if he needs your help. And so Bildad is concerned that Job's questions are accusing God of being unjust. That's, a, that's actually a big, a big thing to say, to say that a just God is unjust. And so Bildad, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Listen, this is what Bildad says. God punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. So the implication is, Job, stop fronting. You sinned, and you are getting what you deserve. And that's it. He implies that Job's caught up in the results of his own wickedness. And he has to say this. Why? Because God forbid Job has any questions about God. Bildad actually doesn't trust that God could defend himself. And so he tries to take on God's case and defend God in front of Job. Ultimately, missing the mark about God and misdiagnosing Job's situation. How many of us, again, in, in, in conversations with friends or family, because our, our, our identity is so wrapped up in, in, in God and what we believe about him, that we feel the need to defend God's justice. And therefore, what Bildad actually does is he actually oversimplifies the human condition. He actually misunderstands and oversimplifies actually what God's justice is. Number three, Zophar, the interpreter of God's ways. Out of all, th- all three of these first speakers, Zophar is the most antagonistic. He tells Job he's a mocker of God. <laughs> he says, Job, don't even ask any questions. How dare you question the immensity of God? How dare you pose a question to him? He says, listen, God, I want God to reveal himself to you, not to answer your questions, but to put you in your place. Zophar wants Job to shut up. And he wants God to show up to put him in his place. He condemns Job as a sinner. 
and states that God is punishing Job for his sinful ways, he essentially tells Job to turn and bur- turn or burn. He says, listen, just admit you're a sinner. Just admit that your questions are mocking God and turn. In the end, Zophar has no words of hope for Job. Job. He says Job's fate is sealed and he deserves his suffering. I think it's interesting to note that the most antagonistic person in these speeches is the one who thinks he knows God the best. There is a serious self-righteousness that comes with the presumption that we know God's motivations and everything. That we can point out exactly what God is doing in the world. This actually happened terribly a, a few years ago in the early 2000s when there was that massive Hadean earthquake. And you had actually some, 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 some Christian leaders saying, well, this is actually um, God's judgment on this country for, you know, and some, some of the responses were given for witchcraft or their corrupt government practices and things like that. When COVID hit, people began to say, like, well, maybe God is judging America as if this was just happening to America. Um, but why? There's this, people think they can interpret God's ways. They can interpret what happens, that they can point out all the connections and point out all the dots, and actually they're God's spokesperson for why this is happening. And any attempt at questioning or wrestling through what's going on is just a mockery. That God is too immense for us to know or understand. And so it's best that when suffering occurs, they know it's best. They know, they know why, is it, why is it occurred. Again, it's very tempting to respond like this to suffering. As humans, we desire control. There's actually an interesting study done about conspiracy theories. And wh- why do people believe in them? It's actually because people want a sense of control. Because life can be random, and seemingly, ran- seemingly random, seemingly chaotic. Things happen that don't make sense. And so the easiest thing to do is to put those events into a neat narrative and call it a day. It's the same thing. We do the same thing with God sometimes. It's easier sometimes in the face of human suffering to put, God, put, put the events into a neat little narrative that defends God and defends what we believe about God. And last friend, Elihu, he's an interesting character. He comes late into the story. He is, um, he's very interesting in that we don't know if he's trying to help Job or not. I'm of the persuasion that Elihu is trying to be a help, but ultimately he's not that helpful. He's the last friend to speak before God himself responds to Job. He says a few right things, but ultimately he's unable to answer Job's questions. It is clear that Elihu's primary motivation is not to defend Job, but to defend God. And so his ultimate aim is like the other friends, to to appeal to God's justice. And here's the issue in Elihu. (laughs) Actually, in the text, Elihu says, one with wisdom now speaks with you. Elihu thinks a lot of himself. He claims to be wise, and, and he gives these really nuanced kind of answers to Job's dilemma, but ultimately he fails, and ultimately he ends up just saying the same thing the other friends have. He adds nothing new to the conversation. And again, again, for many of us, you know, there's, there's a temptation when people are suffering to be the source and the fount of wisdom. C- come and hear and receive from me what God is actually doing here. And the reality is, is that sometimes we don't have the perspective to get it. And so Elihu adds nothing else. See, all of Job's friends make statements about gods that are true-ish. The issue in these statements is that they don't apply to Job. 
By presuming to understand God and Job's suffering, they may speak about Job and about God. They leave no space for Job in his questions. They presume to know why, what's behind Job's suffering and offer religious platitudes to appease their consciences. They oversimplify God, his justice, and trivialize Job's questions in relation to his suffering. Job's questions ultimately make them uncomfortable. And they believe God needs to be defended in light of Job's questions. And so this is ultimately what's happening. There's oversimplification happening. They, they speak too broadly, they paint with a broad brush, and ultimately mischaracterize God and mischaracterize Job. Actually, funnily enough, at the end of the text, God says to Job, hey, listen, and he says to these guys, you've spoken wrongly about me. Get some calves, sacrifice them, and have Job pray for you because you've misspoken about me. And actually, conversely, he tells, at the end of the book, he tells Job, you actually speak, have spoken rightly about me. And we'll get to why, that's ha- why that happens. So what are the dangers of oversimplifying suffering? These are just five key observations. Um, when we oversimplify suffering, we presume to know why people are suffering. Leading to pastoral malpractice and really confusing people as to actually with, or, or the more complex responses to human suffering. Two, we misapply the justice of God creating a caricature of God's divine justice. Three, we fail to see the complexities inherent in the situation of the suffering. We have to admit that human suffering is complex and that in a fallen world, God's plans are not so easily discerned. Number four, we demonize the questions asked by the suffering. Rather than trusting God and his providence to use questioning to bring people closer to him, we actually think questioning distances people from him. And five, we present half-truths as whole truths and misspeak about God and his character. That's the danger of coming to a suffering person and attempting to oversimplify and, and to put their suffering into a neat little box. The question is, how should we respond to the suffering? If the answer isn't oversimplification, is the, if the answer isn't just using our theology to sort everything out so we feel good and we feel confident about what we know about God, how should we respond to human suffering? We share in the mourning of the suffering. Sometimes the best thing you can do is cry with someone and admit you don't have the answers. Number two, we should offer the gift of our presence. The best thing Job's friends did was just sit with him. It is what Christ does for humanity. He offers the gift of his presence by dwelling with a fallen humanity. And it's through dwelling with us that he redeems us. And three, we offer the wisdom of our silence. The Proverbs are full of Proverbs that say, you know what? Even a foolish man looks wise if he's silent. Sometimes the best thing we can do is to be silent in the presence of the suffering. And to allow God to be God and speak to them. We don't need to be the arbiters of God's wisdom. Sometimes the best thing we can do is be silent. Now, I want to caveat all this before I close and worship team, you come join me. I want to caveat all this. Christianity has provided great answers and great responses to the problem of human suffering. There are good theological answers on why we suffer and why suffering occurs in the world despite there being a good God. 
the issue is in the midst of suffering, we often don't have the perspective to properly apply those categories. And so the issue with Job is not that they're, it's not that they say completely false things about God. It's that they misapply true things about God. And one has to wonder, what's worse? Saying false things about God or misapplying true things about God? What's more deadly? What will cost someone their faith? So that's why sometimes the wise thing is to do is to be silent, to allow people to be with people in their suffering. And then after they've asked their questions, after they wrestled, and when they're emotionally ready to begin to walk them through what, what scripture has to say about suffering in general, maybe not their particular situation, but in general, and offer them the hope that no matter what suffering has occurred, that all Christians have, which is the hope of the resurrection. Christ in his, in his incarnation drew near to human suffering. And by drawing near to us, we drew near to him. Suffering paradoxically can draw men and women to God if we let it, if we let suffering do its work, which is, and this is the great hope of the Christian church and the Christian tradition, is that actually there's no such thing as random mindless suffering, that God is somehow in some mysterious way, which we cannot figure out or put into words, God, God is using and, and he is present in the worst of things and somehow, some way, beyond a shadow of explanation, he is working those things together. You know, often hindsight can show us these things, actually. It's, it's why Joseph in Genesis, he doesn't say when he's in the pit or in the prison, they know what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Why? He doesn't have the perspective to say that. But all of a sudden, when his brothers are bowing before him and he saved Egypt from famine and saved his family from famine, he says, oh, wow. Okay. What Satan meant for evil, God turned to good. And so what we have to do is let suffering happen. We can't rescue people from suffering. It happens to each of us. What we don't want to do is circumvent what God is actually in the midst of human suffering, what God is doing to reveal himself to people. Now, that is not to say God allows people to suffer for some weird, sick, twisted way in which he reveals himself to us. We live in a fallen world, so suffering happens. And what's great about the mercy and grace of God is that he sees human suffering and fills himself and, and identifies with our suffering by suffering himself. So that even in suffering, something is revealed about his nature and character, if we let it do his work. The issue is Job's friends wanted to circumvent the work. Because guess what? Job does learn something. In the end of Job, Job learns about the immensity and mystery and power of God. And, he, and even though Job never learns why he suffered, he never gets the backstory of this whole conversation with the Satan and all these things that happened. What Job eventually learns is, you know what, God? I may not be qualified to ask these questions. And that's the lesson God wanted to teach Job. That, and that's the lesson that I think we need to learn about suffering is that ultimately, I think it's sometimes it falls outside our pay grade to diagnose the suffering of our friends and family. And sometimes it just requires loving presence and the wisdom of silence so that God can do his work in suffering. Because God is the God who suffered with us and knows the pain of suffering and he also knows how to transform some suffering. For it is in Christ, death becomes life. And the broken body and shed blood 
become the means of our redemption. And so I want to pray for us, and we're going to take communion. Um, and so as I'm praying, if you're helping serve communion today, the element's right there. And I'll give some instructions on how we'll receive it so it can be a little organized, and then we'll take the communion together. Let me pray for us. Lord Christ, you came into the world as one of us and suffered as we do. As we go through the trials of life, help us to realize that you are with us at all times and in all things, that we have no secrets from you, and that your loving grace enfolds us for eternity. In the security of your embrace, we pray. Amen.